and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard and this week we are going to be talking about power, not just any old power, but new power in fact, because we're entering a new world where power is organised and exercised in different ways and where hyper-connected peoples and countries are uh, operating in ways that don't fit the traditional patterns. And to help us make sense of this world, I'm very pleased to be joined by Jeremy Haymans, who is the co-author of a new book called New Power, How It's Changing the 21st Century uh, and Why You Need It, and also... Back to the podcast is my colleague Susie Dennison, who uh, fittingly enough runs the European Power Programme at ECFR. So Jeremy, you've given us a new way of talking about power and thinking about power um, and have set up this contrast between new and old power. So maybe we could start with that. Thanks, Mark and and Susie. Uh, It's great to to be here. Look, uh, if you think about Bertrand Russell, he defines power very simply as the, you know, the ability to produce intended effects. And what we argue in the book is that there are these two ways you can do that. You can, you can achieve those intended effects. Now, traditionally, most of uh, power, what we called old power, was based on what you knew, what you had, what you owned that no one else did, right? So it was about capture. It was about control. Uh, it was inherently about something that was held by few. And uh, what we argue in the book is that in, you know, increasingly in an age in which uh, we're now all connected, a bunch of structural changes has just increased the viability of a new way to exercise power, which is really based on your ability to channel and harness uh, the energy of others. So it requires you to uh, harness mass participation. Uh, It requires an approach in which you think of power less like a currency, something that you hoard up and spend, and more like a current that you have to try to channel and shape but can't fully control. And that's what we call new power. It's open, it's participatory, it works like a current, it's made by many. And we make very clear in the book that that doesn't mean that it's inherently positive. In fact, that kind of power, that ability to channel the energy of these new connected crowds, to mobilize people in these new ways, you know, is not um, inherently positive and it's being used by some of the world's worst actors, perhaps even more effectively than some that we might consider to be on the side of the angels. So you wrote your, you wrote an article setting out this thing in, in 2014, which was a time when there were a lot of, there was a lot of talk about Web 2.0 and how people were coming together and, and doing things um, uh, collectively, there were lots of leaderless revolutions the, with the Arab uprisings. Um, and uh, how, how do you think that um, the last sort of three, four years have been to the concept of, of new power? Because at that time, there was a kind of sense of, of euphoria and uh, excitement about these leaderless revolutions. And you saw hierarchies toppling left, right and centre Um, But a few years later, a lot of the countries which people were very optimistic about have descended into chaos. And in Syria, old power seems to to um, to at least uh, be doing as as well as the new power 
um, and uh, many of these revolutions have, have collapsed since then. Right. Well, absolutely. I mean, even in 2014, when we wrote that piece, we warned that uh, the sort of the sense that this this new power was um, a, a purely democratizing force was um, was over overhyped. And, you know, it was clear to us that um, this kind of power is easily co-opted. And that, you know, old power is going to be very resilient in certain contexts. So, you know, in terms of cooptation, you know, we pointed out quite quite early that platforms like Facebook and Uber were, um, were at risk of using and harnessing people's participatory energies in a way that ultimately was going to be very extractive and that those players were going to, you know, ultimately display what we would call old power values even while uh, benefiting from and scaling via a new power model. And I think it's also true in, in politics that, um, you know, you have both these, these, as you say, leaderless, I think we would call them leaderful uh, political movements, social movements, revolutions, um, but that, um, that unless those movements find ways to consolidate, um, that, you know, old power forces are going to come back uh, potentially even more strongly. So this is sort of, this is exactly what we're describing in the book. These are the dynamics of our age, I think. It's this sort of battle and balancing of old and new power. Who gets their hands on? Who gets good at these levers of new power? Uh, to what extent can old power forces, uh, you know, use a more traditional repertoire to kind of squish that? Um, these are the things we're seeing all around us, I think, in very different ways. And I think it would be interesting to unpack that. Interesting um, listening to you, um, Jeremy, that um, it, it seems that um, the concept of new power is obviously quite closely um, tied in with um, the, the potential of the internet. And, 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 and from hearing you talk, it, um, uh, it, it made me wonder, thinking about the, the European political landscape at the moment, the extent to which um, in this new power era, um, how, how much um, elections matter anymore? Because I think um, that as, as we head to the European Parliament elections next year, to some extent um, uh, we are live to the fact that there is incredible potential um, uh, uh, online um, to, um, to, to harness um, this, 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 these new forces um, of power in order to win elections or if you don't do it successfully, face losing them. Um, but I wonder the extent to which you, you sort of feel that matters anymore. Um, you know, uh, is, is the, the kind of the electoral cycle in, in which we, we sort of still operate when we're thinking about um, how decisions are made in Europe, is that still relevant? Um, or, or should we be thinking beyond that about um, uh, the extent to which the, the, the sort of the new, the new uh, dynamics are shaping decisions almost regardless of the outcomes of elections? Mm. Well, I think what, what you're seeing is, is this. So one of the dynamics we describe in the book is the tension between the kind of old power norms around formal governance, around institutionalism, the sort of emphasis on representative governance, you know, all of which is reflected, of course, in, in elections, and the kind of new power norms around, you know, informal governance, networked governance, scepticism of those formal institutions, etc. And so I think part of the dynamic that we're seeing is People have all of this participatory energy that's really being supercharged now by our era. People have their hands on so much. And yet when they then interact with the formal institutions of democracy, they find those experiences, you know, much less engaging, right? In fact, they become more and more alienated from their institutions. And so that's part of why I think you see people using referenda and elections, you know, as a way to lash out. They don't feel a connection to those institutions. And as you know, younger people in particular, 
you know, don't have a don't have the same framework for thinking about democracy, arguably, that those of us, you know, who are sort of reared in the 20th century, uh, understanding why these democratic institutions were so valued um, have. So I think that's definitely part of the dynamic. Now, that doesn't mean elections aren't important. I mean, they're clearly still crucial because we live in a world of institutions, right? And those institutions still have an enormous um, role in shaping outcomes. But I think the argument we make is that those people who are on the side of liberal democratic values need to get better at using these new power tools of mobilization, of spreading ideas sideways, as we'd say. Because interestingly, the forces of nativism, of uh, potentially the forces opposed to democracy, the forces of authoritarianism, have figured out that new power tools are a very effective way to spread their ideas. So that, I think, is the dynamic today. And I think those of us who are steeped in these democratic values don't as much tend to reflexively turn to some of these more informal, more networked tools um, as those who are not. So if you look around the European Union at the moment, you've got a lot of political parties that are in trouble that are kind of collapsing and then you have a lot of new movements that seem to be doing quite well, whether it's the Five Star Movement in Italy, Emmanuel Macron and En Marche in uh, in France um, and uh, a lot of leaders who are trying to turn and, and Ciudadanos in, in Spain. Who do you uh, rate as new power practitioners in Europe? Well, I think um, I think it's, it's very interesting, right? You see, as you say, the, the emergence of these new political parties that get the idea that um, you have to make them more participatory if they're going to if they're going to maintain genuine grassroots intensity. So in the book, we talk about Podemos. And I think Podemos is an interesting example of a movement. It grows out of one of these leaderful, leaderless, if you like, social movements, um, the Indignacios sort of movement, um, an offshoot of Occupy in Spain. And then it sort of turns into a party, but a party that is expressly based on these values of let's make it much more participatory, let's make it very easy for people to get involved, to set up these circles, um, to participate in the development of the platform. Now, as, as, as Podemos develops, lots of old power creeps in as well. In fact, even from the beginning, they have this sort of dialectic between old and new power, um, which is p- partly a source of strength and I think partly has been a weakness for them. You know, you see the five-star movement in, in Italy, obviously, again, based on very participatory principles in terms of the way uh, members are engaged and involved, trying to keep it feeling like a movement and not a kind of bunch of apparatchiks. Um, and those those parties, you know, we may like them, we may not like them, depending on their politics, um, are certainly, um, you know, increasingly effective, um, particularly as insurgent parties um, in the context of very stale European politics where, you know, in many cases, for example, the sort of centre-left parties in Europe are being decimated, partly because, you know, they, they've, 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 they've sort of strayed so far from their sort of movement roots um, that there, there isn't that vitality, that intensity of engagement, you know, that particularly, I think, centre-left parties or, or left parties, you know, need, um, you know, in order to be, uh, to be truly effective. What, um, what, what's your take on um, the extent to which um, the European Union or, or kind of um, supranational structures like it can ever hope to, um, to, to sort of to harness um, new power or, or, or whether they're sort of destined um, to kind of wither away in this environment? Because thinking about um, the Five Star Movement, the example that, that you raised, um, you have this, um, this real sort of grassroots movement, movement which... Um, 
which kind of surges um, over the past few years and gets elected. But then once in power, we've already started to see sort of the, the, the realities um, of the need to engage kind of both at European level uh, with, with other national governments, um, but also within the national structure um, with um, the, the kind of the institutions of old power, if you like. And, and, and I guess, you know, to some extent, you see something similar with... Um, uh, La République en Marche in, in, in France that um, you know, a lot of the principles um, uh, of, of, of new power were kind of embraced in, in getting to power um, there was a kind of a, a wave of, of, of novelty and, um, uh, and an energy that Emmanuel Macron rode for the, for the first year which kind of allowed him to, to take forward um, quite a lot of um, uh, fair, you know, an activist foreign policy um, but also um, on the domestic level um, a lot of reforms which were kind of necessary for, for, for France to have this kind of dynamic driving role within Europe um, but now we're kind of almost seeing a clash of new and old power in, in, in France as, um, uh, as, as Macron is, is, is under a lot of criticism for sort of um, creating Jupiter. Become, become the Jupiter that he set himself out to yeah. be and, um, and is, is almost sort of starting to personify elitism uh, again uh, for, for voters and, and, is, and is therefore kind of dropping in popularity so you know is it possible to kind of balance or, or blend as I think your book puts it the, the, the two um, or have we got kind of a tricky transition period as, um, as political leaders kind of try to adapt to this environment? I mean, these are all great questions. I think I think you're absolutely right that we see many more examples of new power in campaigning than we see new power in government. Um, but to unpack that a little bit, as you think about Macron, I think you're right. Uh, you know, he, he builds a a movement. Part of what he's exploiting when he 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 runs his campaign for president is this deep dissatisfaction with established political parties in France. So by creating something that feels more like a movement, less like a party. Uh, you know, he gets that, that that's going to attract people. Um, but at the same time, you know, he's a he's a very conventional centrist politician. And that becomes clear when he becomes president, um, where politically that's the case. And, you know, I, I don't know that by instinct um, Macron is a kind of a movement leader. Um, so inevitably, then the question he'll face is, you know, if he sort of ignores that movement or, or if that movement is sort of neglected over over time, Will that mean that when it comes time for his re-election, you know, he will lack that intensity of support that helped to elect him? And I think this was a dynamic that Obama faced as well. So Obama was incredibly good at using new power to get elected. But once in power, very traditional president, mostly used his supporter base as kind of a donor base, but didn't really bring them into government, um, didn't make U.S. politics more participatory uh, during his administration. And so I think what we'll see is those leaders, I think that's a constraint because ultimately folks will emerge with that intensity of support. So can you do it in government? Well, I think you see, um, you know, good examples and bad examples, right? So, you know, you see good example, you see, you see bad example, I think, in the form of President Trump, who, unlike Barack Obama, really has brought his movement with him. So he governs for that movement um, in a different way to the way Obama saw that movement more instrumentally. Um, but yet, the way he does it reads a, a lot like old power. I mean, he, you know, it's him. It's not held by anybody else. It's like all personified in one person. He's downloading. He uses Twitter to broadcast to, to his people rather than to kind of communicate with them. You know, it's, a, it's um, uh, you know, it doesn't feel very kind of participatory, the Trumpian method. 
I think that's largely right. But I think if you look at certainly the campaign, you know, and even beyond that, he does a lot of what we would call signaling, where he gives signals of empowerment to his crowd. So when he retweets white supremacists and doesn't apologize, um, when he deliberately plucks out the memes from that base um, of extremists and promotes those memes, um, elevates them, then he's actually kind of forming this symbiotic relationship with them. So you're absolutely right. It isn't participatory in a sense that um, you or I would, um, would, 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 would be excited about, but he does a good job of creating a sense of agency among his supporters, I think. Um, but I think to your point, you see more genuine examples of participation, you know, in places like Taiwan, where, you know, we profile in the book the work of Audrey Tang, who's become a minister there, started as an activist in the in the uprisings there a few years ago, um, who's rethinking participation in government. You know, she's she's renamed her uh, her civil servants participation officers, and she's trying to find ways of creating even in what, what in some cases are very dry policymaking exercises, like the regulation of Uber, ways of bringing members of the public in and other stakeholders in, in ways that are genuine, that are interesting, that are more deeply participatory, and that give citizens like a bit of exposure to the trade-offs that come with, with governance, which I think you alluded to, Susie, uh, is, is a dynamic that, um, you know, that, that these new power uh, uh, leaders uh, run into when they're elected. So, Susie, you started out your career as a, as a civil servant and the Treasury. Officer. Did you see yourself as a participation <laughs> officer? Uh, no, I, I mean, I, I can't say I can, but um, already uh, back then, this, this idea that um, there was a need to kind of uh, not only sort of engage in consultation but be seen to engage in con- consultation uh, was was out there and I think that you know that sort of that drive for transparency um, uh, has only been growing um, in the time that I've been working but you know I'd, I, I would question the extent to which when we sort of talk about um, the disconnect between uh, policymakers and um, and voters uh, that kind of consultation is actually what uh, what people want in reality, and you know it, it's always very challenging to get um, that that the sort of the participation, the inputs that, that you want from the public on, on the kind of the policy questions um, of the day. And you know, I, I wonder if um, there's an extent to which uh, you know sort of in, involvement in um, uh, in, in debates. Uh, online can necessarily be kind of fed into um, that that kind of greater participation in decision uh, making, and you know, uh, I you know, I wonder the, about the extent to which the kind of the, the digital discussion does genuinely can ever impact on on the sort of the the day to day of of governance. But maybe that's something you kind of know more about, Jeremy, from your research. Well, I, I don't think it's enough. Clearly, I mean, and it, and it isn't about a, a few kind of. Um, a few tactical exercises in participation, but I, but I do think it's about a whole bunch of things. So if you think about, you know, what would it look like to, to have a more new power approach, approach to government if you were, you know, Macron, you know, part of it would be investing in the En Marche movement, um, creating meaningful ways for those supporters to feed into aspects of the policymaking process, creating more proximity between, you know, his ministers. As you know, in France, ministers are... are, are uh, you know, almost Jupiters themselves, um, you know, more proximity between them and uh, ordinary people. It's the posture of those political leaders 
the degree to which they engage, the, the degree to which they actually behave transparently. So it's clearly like a multi-layered um, thing. And of course, the most important thing is for the policies themselves to be responsive um, to people. Um, you can't do all of those things and then, you know, um, have a set of policies that, that don't serve uh, the interests of, of the people that you claim to. So can we think a bit more about what, what new power means for foreign policy? I mean, in, in the, you know, one of the examples you uh, talk about is this kind of um, grotesque confrontation between ISIS and the, the State Department. And so maybe you, should, maybe you could explain that a little bit. At the beginning of the book, we sort of contrast um, the, the way a young ISIS recruiter called Aksa Mahmoud, who is a Scottish schoolgirl, a uh, very normal kid who finds her way, nonetheless, to Syria. She'd been recruited by ISIS, then becomes this powerful recruiter of other teenage girls from the West. And we looked at her her methods and, you know, very effective, creating this intimate girl-to-girl network. Um, you know, her, her blog was full of these memes and emojis about how do you leave your family behind to make jihad? What toiletries do you bring when you come to Syria? All of these ways in which she basically took this ideology, this medieval theocracy, and adapted it to how would you get a teenage girl from the West to, to participate. Um, and then we contrast that with the kind of traditional methods of, of governments in propaganda. And so, you know, we, we talk about the US government's response to ISIS and the, the sort of twin response early on was, one, they started just getting uh, bombers and, and uh, raining down leaflets on civilian populations in Iraq and Syria, warning them not to join ISIS, you know, which is a technique they'd used from the First World War, but, but, but now seems so absurd as a tactic relative to the ways that um, these ideas are spreading and metastasizing and being adapted um, sideways, right, using, using social media and digital media. And then we also say, you know, we point out that when the U.S. government did try to start using social media as a, as a battlefield here, their first response was to create a Twitter account called Think Again, Turn Away, which was designed to dissuade potential jihadis where they chose surely the most effective spokesperson for those angry with the US um, and its foreign policy, which was the seal of the State Department was the, was the profile picture. So you sort of see um, just these old power instincts kicking in and it, it, it underlies the stakes, which is that, you know, it's very hard for, for big institutions um, to, to think and act in new power ways, but that's the challenge you know, demands right now as you, you, you look at these non-state actors and their incredible ability to uh, scale and mobilise um, violent ideologies, um, you know, in the way that ISIS has done. Is it even possible? I mean, the interesting thing about the kind of fight against ISIS is that it's both been most effective where all power institutions have played to their strengths, which is mustering large amounts of air power and firepower and um, literally wiping them off the, the face of the, um, you know, crushing them um, yeah. rather, than, uh, rather than tweeting them out of existence. Yeah, well, I mean, look, you know, a big message of our book, by the way, is, is that uh, the most effective actors know how to blend old and new power. Um, and we profile a bunch of organizations that have a very strong old power repertoire and a very strong new power repertoire. And I think in the case of ISIS, you know, the military campaign might have been effective, but without the new power strategy, you're, you are going to see, as, as has happened, this jack-in-a-box dynamic where, you know, um, where new 
we're new actors, uh, even if they don't have the sort of military presence that ISIS had in its first iteration, pop up everywhere. And so, you know, the question is, you looking forward, you know, and you could imagine another ideology that may have a slightly different theme to ISIS spreading even more, metastasizing even more effectively and quickly than ISIS has. Uh, and if you if you kind of forecast that and think how are governments positioned to do that, and if if it's not the kind of movement or ideology that you can just bomb at, um, we're in real trouble. So um, we, Susie and I, live mainly in a kind of old power world. We're spending our time talking to different European civil servants, uh, politicians, governments, trying to get them to work out how to kind of advance their diplomacy, and we. Uh, work for a think tank which is a kind of product of that old power age where um, you know leaders led and they were uh, their policies were implemented by civil servants um, who uh, there was an attempt to gather evidence and do research and to to propagate it to these kind of uh, elites in different places who would then talk to elites in other countries um, if you were designing a European Council on foreign relations for, for the new power age, what would it look like? Rest assured, guys, uh, you know, think tanks aren't going away. Uh, elites aren't going away. Um, you know, influencing ideas in that way is still critical. But, but I would argue that, you know, the weakness of particularly um, a lot of folks, um, you know, who, who are espousing you know, integrationist type values as, as, as you do, um, democratic norms, liberal norms um, are, are struggling in part because they have this view that the facts are, are enough and that all you really have to do is put those facts together, uh, make a white paper, get that white paper covered in the New York Times or wherever the, the appropriate you know, elite media outlet is and, and create some, some convenings. And I think we see on a lot of issues how easily that strategy gets undermined um, by these new power methods. So you think about climate change and the enormous damage that was done by, you know, the, the climate deniers' efforts to undermine, uh, you know, the, the uh, you know, the climate scientists at the UN. Um, but in general, you see that these debates um, that are premised on uh, respect for expertise um, get chipped away at. So, of course, in Brexit, you, you saw the Leave campaign very effectively exploiting this sense that we've had enough of experts, right? What have experts delivered? And the experts just kept, you know, just kept uh, strutting out their white papers about the economic impact of Brexit, and it wasn't enough. So what I would argue is, you know, uh, uh, you guys have an incredibly important role to play, arguably more important than ever in a world in which, you know, facts and expertise are being undermined daily, so the question is, how do you develop a new power repertoire alongside that fantastic repertoire of, you know, writing those white papers and publishing things and talking to elites? And I think that's about, you know, building communities around your work um, that can genuinely spread your ideas, creating space for people to change and adapt your ideas, even in ways that maybe you wouldn't um, find ideal, um, even in ways that would mean you would have to give up a measure of control. Um, but those things would, would no doubt help your ideas, um, you know, have a deeper uh, root and grounding in uh, more people. And I think that's going to be essential, um, you know, in the future. So I think that you, know, you guys are playing a role alongside some new power work that together 
could really be transformational, but you, you need both. But how would you, if you want to get a bit more concrete about that, how does one, what do you mean when you say you need to build a community of people who can debate these ideas? What does that? You know, in your case, it's not going to be millions of people, but who are the 10,000 people that you could cultivate um, that when you release something new, those people are empowered to not just share the idea because it's not enough just to share it, but to build on it, adapt it, change it, um, you know, write something in response to it, uh, edit it, um, uh, adapt it to a particular geography or sector. Is there a way you can build a community of 10,000 people um, that you've really given enough agency to that every time you do something, um, it takes on a life of its own? You know, we have this expression in the, in the book, uh, it's not a movement if it doesn't move without you. And I think institutionally, institutions tend to think, well, we've written this thing, so now um, how do we make sure that everybody just shares the thing? Um, but that actually really limits the capacity for an idea like that to, to travel. So a focus on the underlying ideas and how to give those underlying ideas um, more life probably requires that the, um, the idea moves beyond the work that you've produced. Um, and doing that effectively just requires a different set of skills. So how, do, how, would, you, uh, how would you go about planning something like that? Well, I think, you know, firstly, you have to understand who those 10,000 people could be. Um, and they may not all be elites. You know, one of the interesting facts of our age is that some of the most influential people um, in, for example, conversations that happen on social media are not elites, right? They are, you know, you can, you can get a, a celebrity with 10 million Twitter followers, but you'd find that that celebrity's ideas might get broadcast down to their audience and not really shared. Um, whereas you have someone with... 10,000 followers who's just got a really deep symbiotic relationship with their community and everything they say has influence on that community and they have this ability to get their community to take an idea and, and run with it. So I would look for those people, you know, who are those people in the debates and the issues on which you work? Can you identify them? Can you convene them? Can you talk to them in ways that, you know, frankly, an institution that's more focused on elites might be tend might might naturally tend to ignore. That that would be one step. Sounds really exciting. I think our editorial team would break out in a cold sweat at the idea of giving people more agency in shaping our outputs. <laughs> but you know, worth a try. <laughs> so, um, Jeremy, if you if we kind of look forward to, at the way that um, the kind of power world uh, is developing, we assume that you're going to see this coexistence of new and old powers and uh, an increasing blending of them by, by different actors. What do you think that that means for the, the future of, of, of politics um, over the next 10 years? Are there either issues which you think might erupt into public awareness as a result of, uh, of this new uh, constellation of power? Or um, do you think that it could lead to much greater volatility, uh, that, 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 that things will be done in different ways? I mean, uh, put, if you kind of look in your crystal ball, how does uh, this new world uh, differ from that which we have lived through over the last few decades? Yeah, well, I think, you know, I think a, a lot of what's happening feels obvious, but there's, there's a reason, for example, that issues of identity, you know, immigration, race, Etc. are growing in salience. And it's not just that the issues are growing uh, in, in their scale. It's also that issues that touch on identity that are, that are about um, tribalism, that connect to deeply held values, tend to be the things that, um, that, that mobilise. 
So more and more, I think you can think of the future as being a battle over mobilization, who mobilizes best. And uh, what I think that partly means is that we're going to have more debates about issues of identity, race, um, et cetera, gender, um, than we had in the past, because those are the issues that, you know, you sort of inherently bias toward in, in this sort of social media environment that we're in. And I can't see how that really changes. You know, you, we're not all going to make some collective decision to say, you know, let's turn down the temperature, everybody, and, and get back to debating, you know, monetary policy. Um, so I think that will create a, a bit of a disconnect because it'll mean that the things that are occupying popular attention um, will increasingly do that. And then the issues that engage technocrats may be even further removed from, you know, from the public's focus and imagination. And that's a problem because it, again, creates this increasing remoteness between people and institutions. So I think we'll see more of that. I think we'll see, you know, shadow institutions form more. So if you think about, you know, cryptocurrencies and the blockchain and all of, all of those things, they are really in ways of enabling people to uh, organize without institutions. So this disintermediation of institutions will, I think, increase. And I, I would expect to start to see that in, in, in economic and political spaces more and more. Um, and I don't exactly know how that's going to play out, but, but, I, but I expect that some of it will, will threaten the primacy of, of, of institutions. Um, so I think that'll be a real dynamic and a real issue. Um, and I think we'll see these hybrid forms emerge, you know, where sort of representative governance will realise that, you know, different forms of participatory governance needs to be integrated alongside it. So I think you'll see these hybrids of deliberative methods, participatory methods and representative methods kind of um, show up uh, in, uh, you know, in, in, in governance at the national and, the, and even the potentially the transnational level. OK, well, um, it's been really interesting talking to you. We're going to have to go away and start building our 10,000, uh, our army of 10,000 <laughs> or in fact, our, not an army, our crowd. <laughs> No, I think there's lots, lots to be thinking about for, for all the different governments, uh, would-be foreign policy makers uh, out there as well. If um, uh, you had to give leaders of the future one piece of advice, uh, maybe we'll end with that um, around, around Europe, how can they uh, best adapt to this new world? Well, you know, I would probably lean on this advice um, about, uh, you know, the, the, the test of the effectiveness of your leadership is whether what you do moves without you. And I think that's really tough because even some of the most visionary leaders in our world today, the people that we all admire, are often trapped in this dynamic where the movement they build, the idea they lead, you know, is, becomes very dependent on them. And it's very, very hard to, to unanchor from that. You know, I think President Obama um, faced that problem um, and that was part of why, you know, his successor could not be elected, why despite having what by many counts was a very successful presidency and despite being very personally popular, at the end of his presidency, the party he led, you know, was, was, was in a very weak position around the country and Donald Trump emerged as his successor. So that is the stress test. I think that's the question. Can what you do evolve and move without you and beyond you? And I think that's going to be even more important in a world in which uh, those who mobilise best are going to be the ones who win. Great. Well, thank you very much, uh, Jeremy. Uh, Jeremy's book, New Power, which is co-written with uh, Henry Timms, is available from all good bookshops, and we'll put up a link to it on our 
website at www.ecfr.eu slash podcast and we'll also link to the precursor piece which I mentioned before which Jeremy and Henry wrote in 2014 which gives you a, a summary of some of the basic concepts of new and old power. Um, if you've enjoyed listening to the podcast please let your friends know about it either by uh, writing about it on your social media pages or on ours or even better rushing to iTunes or whatever platform you're using to listen to this podcast on and uh, giving us a rating and review. We uh, are not having a bookshelf segment this week because uh, the only thing to recommend is is new power. (laughs) However, we are going to continue this attempt to crowdsource bookshelf recommendations in the future. So if you have any recommendations which you'd like to share with other listeners, please write to me at mark.leonard at ecfr.com. EU. But for now, from Jeremy Haymans, Susie Dennison and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The researcher of ECFR podcast is Jonathan Harkenbosch and our editor is Katarina Bertel-Azzinaro. Mm-hmm.